But in fact, it's fascinating that this is what God says about Sirius and that God has actually appointed him, although he doesn't, and it actually says later on uh, in this Isaiah, it says um, that even though he does not acknowledge me, but God's appointed him to come and be the one who will start to allow the Jews to return to their homeland. But let me read what it says in Isaiah 45. This is what the Lord says to his anointed Sirius, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you might know that I am the Lord your God, the God of Israel who summons you by name. And then later on it says, um, well, I'll read on four and five. For the sake of Jacob, my servant of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. Now, we'll come back to that phrase, though you do not acknowledge me, a wee bit later. But that's, uh, that brings us into Sirius, who becomes king of Persia. Uh, and of course, um, they have defeated Nebuchadnezzar and, and the Babylonians and so are now in the kingdom of Persia. And what is interesting about Sirius is that he starts to show... Uh, he, he has a, an approach to other religions other than his own where he basically is saying live and let live. So he's happy for, well not happy, but he actually nurtures uh, various religions to be allowed to flourish freely. And that of course includes um, the Jews and he, he therefore then allows them to go back to, uh, to Israel or to uh, Jerusalem to start to rebuild the temple. And that's the first start of the return to Jerusalem. And then there are a couple of, as I say, short-lived rulers between Sirius and Darius. But Darius is a similar sort of ruler to Sirius. And so, uh, as we see at the start of Ezra, uh, although Ezra doesn't come till later on, until uh, past the time of um, where the book of Esther is written, in inverted commas, and we'll look at that in a moment, um, uh, but at the, at the start of the book of Esther, we see where Sirius is, uh, in fact, offering the opportunity and encouraging and providing the, the means by which um, some of the exiles can return to start rebuilding the temple. As I say, there's an interruption for a short time before Darius comes to power and he ensures then uh, the resumption of the building of the temple. And then we have this book of Esther that slips in here. Um, and Esther is set in Persia. It's not set in Jerusalem. And that's one of the interesting features about it, that it is not uh, set back in the Jewish homeland, but it is uh, Jews who are in the, let me see if I can get this word correctly. I wrote, I wrote down how to say it. <laughs> Diaspora. <laughs> Those who are in the, they're in dispersion. They're still dispersed. They're not in their home uh, country, uh, their home yeah, they're, they're not in their, their own land. So we come to the book of Esther. Um, and as I say there, it sort of is almost plunked in there because it's interrupting the story of the return to Jerusalem, the return of the exiles, because uh, then later on we get back to Ezra and Nehemiah 
Ezra, who rebuilds the temple, and, and Nehemiah, who rebuilds the walls. Although, interestingly, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible come before the book of Esther, but um, let me explain that one to you at another stage. <laughs> uh, so let's, let's dive in then to Esther. If you want to turn back to the, um, the front of the handout. And so, first of all, because we're trying to understand uh, these books in a, you know, a, the widest possible uh, context, let's think about the genre. In other words, uh, what is the style of writing and therefore how can we read it? Well, what I found fascinating, uh, having loved the book of Esther, simply the story of it and didn't know any of this before doing this preparation and I'm delighted to have had the opportunity uh, to do the preparation to learn so much. Um, but uh, Esther, there's a bit of question mark over whether Esther is actually an historical record or whether it's a book of fiction or whether it's a bit of both. Um, and uh, I think it would be fair to say that there's still debate going on among scholars to this day about it. So how do we understand that and wh where is that coming from? Well, what I have gleaned is that it is to do with the style of the writing. And I think uh, most of the, um, well, I shouldn't say most because there's definitely still debate. Calvin never preached on Esther and apparently Luther thought it shouldn't be in the canon at all. Uh, was very disparaging about it, possibly because it doesn't mention God, which we'll come to in a moment. Um, but yeah, uh, so is it a work of, is it a, an historical uh, record? It's not written like many of the historical records. Is it a fictional record, a story, a bit like a parable that has a meaning for us to learn from it? Or is it an historical record written as story rather than chronicle, which allows for a bit of exaggeration and poetic, poetic license? I mean, for example, and I think part of the reason is, uh, that I've gleaned for that is that th there seems to be um, a, li a, a lack of historical evidence for some of the things that are stated or come through in the book of Esther. And also this idea of exaggeration. Apparently the gallows that were uh, put up for Haman or that Haman put up for Mordecai and eventually he was put onto was the height of, what was it that I read? Something like 60 story height building. So there's something wrong there. <laughs> uh, so there are issues that have uh, kind of caused um, scholars to be scratching their head uh, about Esther and how we understand it. But I would like to read uh, for you from an article that Desi sent through to me, uh, and it's in the, the resources there, uh, a guy called Barry Webb, and this is what he says uh, about it. And I think we'll work, uh, we'll, we'll definitely work from this as the basis of how to understand Esther uh, and uh, it, where it comes from. The book of Esther uh, is best seen as an uh, is, is, sorry, I'll try again. The book of Esther is best seen as an historical novella set within the Persian Empire. This is not to say that the book is false, only that it is truth, like truth of any piece of literature is, re uh, is relative to its genre, and the genre of Esther is not that of historical annual, rather that of story. So, you can come back and, and uh, debate that or discuss with it later. But that's just to give you a wee bit of a, an insight into that. Um, I'm going to come back to purpose at the end because I think that that will help us to get our heads around how we then might apply the book of Esther uh, to us. But let's dive into the story. And 
It is a familiar story, isn't it? It's one that you're, you probably uh, could tell me the story of in sense of, of what we know of it. Um, but let's just get a, a bit of a, a, a bit more detail to some of these characters. And I think if we follow the characters, then we get the story. And of course, it starts off with, um, well, Xerxes, who is at this point the king of the Persian Empire. And Xerxes is not like Darius and Sirius. He's a weak man. Um, he's weak in battle, but he's also weak mor uh, morally. And he's also, um, apparently, he was one of the most beautiful men of his time. Um, it's not often you talk about a man being beautiful, but you are all beautiful. Of course you are. <laughs> uh, but apparently, he's obviously very handsome. Um, and clearly knew it, as we would say, in good old Northern Irish parlance. And so he loved his wine, woman, and song, and he loved his parties. And of course, we enter into uh, the book of Esther at the start of a big, long party that's gone on for days and days and days, and probably much alcohol consumed and many drunken, sorry, excuse me, many drunken men. Uh, not that women cannot be drunk, of course, better be careful. Um, and he, he calls his queen, Vashti, to be brought in as a kind of a trophy. No doubt she was quite gorgeous as well. And to be brought in as this trophy wife, and she refuses. Now, what do you do when your uh, whole sense of well-being is built on being this powerful, I am, my honor matters, uh, you know, I will not be defied, and the person that you're supposed to have most control over says, no, not coming. I don't know how Vashti didn't lose her head, but we don't have any record that she did. Uh, anyway, she was dismissed, and he sends out this edict that all the women have to obey their husbands, and da 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 da, -da um, and we can debate that sort of thing at another time. Um, and so he then uh, gathered or gets a gathering of all the lovely young women into a harem, and they go through all these preparations so that someone can become his wife. And as you'll remember from the story, Esther is the one who is chosen. Now, uh, Mordecai, uh, was Esther carried away against her will? Or did Mordecai encourage her to go because he could see further into the future than, uh, than maybe the rest? Who knows? It's most likely she was probably forced to go, that these young women were rounded up. Um, but it does leave her exposed to extreme immorality. Um, and you might want to come back and pick that one up at some other time. But uh, there she is in this harem, and eventually she becomes his wife. Um, but let's then hasten forward and look at these other uh, main characters. And so uh, after she becomes his wife, and Xerxes then appoints Haman, uh, as I suppose is prime minister, certainly one of his top officials. Uh, and that, that's the next most important part of the story. But just before that, we have to remind ourselves that before Haman is appointed, uh, Mordecai, who is Esther's cousin, elderly cousin, Esther's a, an orphan, but Mordecai has prevented a plot against the king's life. He has overheard something and he has ensured that, that uh, uh, this became known to the king. Mordecai's uh, faithfulness is recorded in the annuals, and that's a very important thing for us to know, that Mordecai uh, and his protection of the king before Haman comes in the scene was recorded in the annuals of the king. And so it's there on a record that Mordecai was a very faithful servant of the king. 
So fast forward then to Haman, and he's appointed as prime minister. Haman is an agite. And I want you to hear, uh, or, or just to point out that uh, back in 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul, uh, as part of his um, battles against the enemies of the Lord, was told to destroy the Agites, and he didn't. He plundered them, and I can't quite remember exactly what he did. Did he take them captive, Desi? But uh, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. So that has a knock-on generations later. But here is this man who is uh, someone from a, a historical you know, body of people who are real enemies of God's people. And so here he comes to power. And he's, he's like Xerxes. He is someone who loves to be honored. He wants to be seen as important. And so he asks the king to allow him to send out this uh, edict, I suppose it is, that everybody has to bow down to him. And of course, Mordecai won't do it because Mordecai is a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, probably through Kish, and that goes right back to Saul. So isn't it interesting when you see the links that there we have Saul not doing what he was supposed to, and so generations later you have these two uh, groups, uh, these, these, the, the generational thing coming through. So here we have this tension between uh, an historic enemy of the people of God and, uh, and, and one of, of God's people, a Jew. He was a very faithful Jew. So Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And that's what catapults us into the crises because Haman's having none of it. He wants to be this Lord. He wants to be Xerxes' second in command. And, and so he persuades this weak king. Uh, it's hard to know whether the king had thought through what he was signing or whether he was drunk at the time or what was going on, just knowing the nature of Xerxes. But Haman gets... Um, Xerxes to sign uh, a royal edict that the Jews are to be annihilated on a certain day. And so here we are. We have the young Esther, who's a Jew, but who has been told to keep her um, uh, ethnicity a secret as queen to the king. And she is not going to be spared just because that's her position, because the royal word cannot be gone against. It has, it, it has to be delivered as given. So let me then take you to, and we'll read Esther uh, 4, because that takes us to the point where, and of course Mordecai goes into sackcloth and ashes, uh, because he knows what this is going to mean for the people of God. So if we find Esther 4, which I thought I had marked, and maybe I haven't, here we are. I think it's Esther 4. Yes, it is. Um, so uh, Esther has sent her um, maids and eunuchs to find out why Mordecai is at the gate uh, in sackcloth and ashes, which means he's in mourning. Uh, he's in complete mourning. And the word comes back to Esther that um, this is why, that this edict has gone out and that the Jews are going to be annihilated at a certain time. Um, and Esther uh, sends back to Mordecai uh, you know, there's an exchange between them. And eventually it comes down to this. So Hatash, who is one of, of the eunuchs, comes back, uh, went back and reported to Esther that Mordecai, what Mordecai had said. 
Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal province knew that basically, sorry, Mordecai had told Esther to go to the king and plead for the people of God. Sorry, I should have put that in. So uh, let me try again. Hatash went back to report to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people <clears throat> of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman to approach the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the gold scepter to him and spare his life. But 30 days have passed since I was called to the king. So for some reason, Esther is a bit out of favor. And you can well imagine that King Xerxes wasn't spending his nights on his own. He would have had other company in his bed at night, we imagine. So Esther is clearly well out of favor at this point. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are the king's sorry, you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, and this is a very important verse. If you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And we'll come back to that when we look at the purpose. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That famous verse from uh, Esther. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. And I suppose the question that it asks for me is, here's a young girl who starts off and she's full of fear. She's saying, I, I can't go to him. I mean, it'll mean instant death because he hasn't called me in 30 days. I haven't been there in 30 days. And as I've just said, it probably means she's out of favor and he's got someone else in his bed with him. And uh, she says, so, you know, how can you ask me to do this? And then Mordecai comes back and he says to her very clearly, well, Perhaps you're there for this reason. And if you don't do it, don't worry. Uh, God will find another way. But perhaps for such a time as this, you are there. That's quite a challenge, isn't it? <laughs> it really is quite a challenge. And then Esther, something gives her a backbone. <laughs> I think I might have needed an awful lot more than Mordecai scolded me to give me a backbone, but there you go. Um, and she says, right, I will do it. If I perish, I perish. And again, we'll pick that up when we come back to look at the purpose and maybe what God has to say to us. So basically, she goes to the king and uh, very quickly, because the time is disappearing very quickly already. She goes to the king. Uh, he accepts her. She calls a banquet uh, for him and uh, Haman to come to. And uh, they do that over three days. It's an awful lot of feasting that goes on. Um, and then eventually, during this feasting, she exposes Haman. Oh, sorry, that's mine. Uh, she exposes Haman uh, to the king and uh, what he has done. 
and um, uh, and the king is distraught because he realizes, well, here we're in a right pickle now because he has sent out an edict and it can't be revoked. And so the king leaves and Haman falls at Esther's feet, begs for mercy. The king comes back in and thinks that he's actually molesting his queen. And so things go from bad uh, to worse for Haman. Um, uh, and so he eventually ends up actually on the gallows that he had built for Mordecai. Uh, I'm sort of skipping over the story a bit because I imagine you uh, will, will know it fairly well. Um, but this leaves the tricky problem, even though Haman's out of the way, there is a royal decree that says on a certain day the Jews are to be slaughtered. And so where how, the king can't revoke that. The irrevocable cannot be revoked, and yet it, it is in a very particular way because what happens then is that the king actually uh, sends out an additional uh, edict to say that the Jews can defend themselves and through defending themselves they are not annihilated and in fact they um, have victory over their enemies those who would have destroyed them um, and as a result this festival of Purim is established which to this day the Jews still celebrate I can tell you that the date in 2020 is the 10th and 11th of March. So there you go. I just happened to discover that then. That's an amazing place, isn't it? I wouldn't know half of this without it. Um, so that to me is an interesting thing that this festival continues. When you think back to all the questions about uh, was Esther uh, a story? Um, is it a historical record? What is it? Uh, or whatever. I will say a wee bit about what I see the purpose of the book is, so if you go back to the uh, second point on your handout, the purpose of the book. Um, and I've suggested a few things here. Reminder that the sovereign purposes of God will not be thwarted. That the sovereign purposes of God will not be thwarted. And here we see um, an edict that was irrevocable and it seemed impossible to get around that. And yet... Um, the sovereign purposes of God were not thwarted. Um, all the intricacies of how the story wove together, and here we see at the end of it that God's purposes triumphed. His people were not wiped out. And he has promised that, hasn't he? That his people will never be wiped out. You think of Hitler. He did his darndest to ensure that the Jews, the, the Jews would be annihilated. Well, he didn't. He didn't get there, praise God. And it often, uh, when I think of this, it makes me think of a, a wonderful scripture in Isaiah 52 and 12. The Lord will be, go before you, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And that has often been a wonderful comfort to me in <coughs> all that goes on. Because uh, our circumstances are up and down and good, they're bad, they're all sorts of things. But to hold on to that truth that the God of Israel is ahead of us and he's behind us. And so his sovereign hand is there uh, working out his purposes. Now, we'll take a look in a moment <clears throat> about where we partner with that because I think that's a hugely important thing to think about, <clears throat> that his sovereign purposes uh, are not just him in, imposing things, albeit that because we can't understand the mind of God, there is a sovereignty about all that goes on. And we sang that lovely song this morning, Sovereign Over Us. Uh, but there is an interplay between us and God, uh, even in the outworking of that, as we've just seen 
with Esther and Mordecai and all that went on there. So that would be the first thing I'd want to put out for us to think about. Um, God is at work even when he seems to be totally absent. The book of Esther never mentions his name, never mentions the name of God. And yet, as you read it, he's on every page, he's on every line. And he's on every page and every line through his people and through the faithfulness of Mordecai and and Esther uh, and so on. But even when God seems to be absent, Tim Keller uh, preached a series on Esther and he called it the silent sovereignty of God, um, that uh, his name is not mentioned. Now, for some of the critics of Esther, they would say, well, that's a reason that shouldn't be in the canon. Um, but um, but that, that doesn't strike me as a good enough reason at all. God is at work even when he seems to be totally absent. And as we think about some of the stuff that goes on in our lives, that sometimes we have to hang on by our fingernails because we can't understand where God is in this or how he could be in it or how we could find ourselves in this circumstance. And yet he is. He's working out his sovereign purposes and that's where this vowing our need to him is so important. God is faithful to his promises to deliver his people. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. And so that takes us back to Mordecai's pro- uh, comment in 4.14, where he says, Do not think that because of you, uh, because you're in the king's house alone, all the Jews uh, were, uh, sorry, of all the Jews, that you will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And that's a very important phrase, that there is this interplay between us and our partnership with God, but God is weaving together circumstances and opportunities And if we don't quite get it right, it doesn't mean he's kaput. (laughs) It doesn't mean that his sovereign purposes are then banjaxed. But he does want us to be involved. It's a mystery. It's too big for our minds to get our heads around. But uh, do give us a bit of debate about it. Um, God is active among his people even in the diaspora uh, when they're dispersed from their homeland. And that's uh, very clear there. And the responsibility of God's people to remain faithful, especially when they're in uh, a place of dispersion. And then the other purpose is the establishment of this Jewish festival um, that goes on to this day. And in fact, at the very end of the book of Esther, uh, in Esther 9, and what verse is that? 28, it says, And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. And to this day, that festival is one of the Jewish festivals. God has plans and purposes that he intends to fulfill. And, uh, and, and they won't be thwarted. And here's another one that is quite interesting that I think comes out of the book of Esther that we are given divine opportunities to partner with God. We are given divine opportunities to partner with God. So, and, the, and our partnering can, in fact, alter events. And that's what we see in the book of Esther. And so this idea of the sovereignty of God, but also us being invited into this partnership with him as his people. And I think that's a very... Um, thought-provoking idea when you look at where we sit as a Christian church 
at the current time in society. So there's one to think about. Do you agree with me? God is looking for obedience, clarity of thinking, confidence to live by his ways and courage to live by his ways and under his authority, uh, even in a time and culture when, we, when everything around us is challenging us um, to think of the ways of God as somewhat not fitting with modern thinking. And then, uh, this is an interesting idea. God uses everyone. Think of Sirius. And yet, he didn't claim he wasn't one of God's people. God uses everyone and everything to bring about his ends. 